what we want to do is change the stigma around special needs. Okay, you will get stigma to sympathy is an easier transition, but we want stigma to sympathy to support, you know, to solutions. So, I mean, that's the journey, right? Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Charu Ramanathan, who is the CEO and co-founder of Vital Exchange. Charu is also a serial entrepreneur, though. She co-founded Cardio Insight, a company specializing in non-invasive cardiac imaging systems, which she successfully led through its growth stages and ultimately its acquisition by Medtronic back in 2015. After which, she also co-founded Lokiota Global, which is developing advanced credit scoring algorithms to foster financial inclusion in emerging economies. Most recently, though, Charu is building Vital Exchange, which is a person-focused health network centered around patients, people, caregivers, and families. Vital Exchange is based here in Cleveland and has raised over $2 million in capital in pursuit of positive impact and elevating human life. Charu's passion really comes through in full in this conversation, which I very much enjoyed, and I really hope that you all do as well. So you've been working on Vital Exchange now for a few years, but as I understand it, this is not your first stop on the entrepreneurial journey in terms of building something from scratch, leading a startup, bringing new technology to market to push the healthcare industry forward. Um, so I'd love if you could just share a little bit about what ultimately got you into entrepreneurship and the path that has led you to Cleveland and the work that you're pursuing today. Yeah, so I came to the United States to pursue a master's degree in biomedical engineering and then ended up staying on to do a PhD for mostly primary reason was that I actually didn't have an idea of what I was going to do after my grad school, after master's, right? <laughs> but I was very lucky in that the project that I worked on, which was a, a mapping system, which was basically to non-invasively record the signals of the heart so that you could interpret from the outside what was going on with respect to any rhythm abnormalities on the heart. I had to take that technology with the help of my advisor at the time, Dr. Yoram Rudy and a couple of colleagues to, from bench to bedside. So we really did animal models. We did computer models. We, did, we started to do clinical studies here at the University Hospitals of Cleveland and started to see how it could benefit patients and how excited the cardiologists were to see the results, like they could map it non-invasively. And then we started, started to think, hey, we're writing NIH grants every year asking money from the government that this would be a clinical tool someday. And how is that going to happen? Like, are we going to do this through one publication at a time? Or are we going to do something about this? And I started to have those conversations with, you know, at that time, I'm, I, I had a mentor, I had a side job with a company in town called Athersis that had uh, moved into town from the Bay Area. Uh, founder was Gil Van Bakkelen that that had started a company. It's a biopharmaceutical company. So I was talking to him about it and he said, well, you got to do a startup. And then I was like, okay, well, how do I do that? 
Well, do you have patents on the technology? Yes. We'll go talk <laughs> to the university about licensing that technology. And so that was a kind of the conversation with the with Case Western Reserve University to say, hey, we have all these patents. You know, obviously I was a co-inventor on them. I just thought, yeah, I'm a co-inventor. Let me license this and build a company. Oh, well, that was a very unpleasant surprise because the university is like, well, wait a second, you may have invented it, <laughs> but we funded it and it, we own it. And uh, you have no experience. You're just a graduate student. How are you going to start this company? And keep in mind, this was 15 years ago where the culture was still very old school, right? You had to have a business degree and years and years and years of C-suite experience before you know, anybody could start anything. And clearly, many, many people from marks of the world have proven them wrong. So it, life has really been different. Right, right. So basically, that's kind of where I got my, my bug <laughs> to be an entrepreneur. It just happened. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed translating the, the technology. I enjoyed kind of growing on the job, I'd say like growing, maturing uh, to be a, a leader, to take responsibility for things that I had never done, like, you know, growing a team, nurturing a team, raising funding, watching that funding disappear, and then redoing that without really losing my mind and, you know, <laughs> doing all of that through the economic downturn of 2009 and, you know, and so on and so forth. And really making very strong allies and friends along the way that were very similar thinkers, whether they were investors or advisors or collaborators or other physicians or other healthcare leaders. So yeah, that was kind of my journey. And um, the company got acquired in 2015 by Medtronic. And uh, I was with Medtronic for two years, learned a lot about how big corporations run, learned a lot about the things that would need to be done properly in order to be assimilated into a large company. And it doesn't happen organically. Mm -hmm. And when people say that, it's not really cliched, it's true. Because when very large companies acquire small companies, they're under a lot of exposure, right? With the FDA liability, all that stuff. So they they want to take this little company that is producing one line of products into a system that they can stand, that, they, that their brand can stand behind. So that, that requires a lot of, I hate this word remediation, <laughs> but it's very process oriented. And I, I am not, that's not what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about solving problems and innovation. And, you know, it's it's quite difficult, you know, four layers down where to the decisions would have to write up and probably get lost somewhere in the second or third layer. And it was a little bit frustrating. Uh, I matured. I learned a lot. Yeah. But it also confirmed for me that what I needed to do was to come back into the startup world because that's where I did my best. And the funniest thing is one of the cardiologists that was a mentor that we worked with that was also an advisor for Medtronic told them, like, let her go. Tiggers need to do what Tiggers do best. They need to bounce around and her bounce is gone. <laughs> <laughs> so what I did was by that time, I had Kethal Patel, who was our head of product development at, at, at Cardio Insight, the, the company that I just, my first company that I founded. He and I had become really good friends and we started to brainstorm towards the end of that two-year journey. What are we going to do, right? We got to do something that solves a bigger problem. And both of us are of Indian origin. We are, he's a, he's a second generation immigrant. I'm a first generation immigrant to the United States. 
And we, he had prior to CardioInsight worked on a cancer treatment system called Vuray. And before that, other systems as well. And combined, we realized that we had worked on medical products that was affordable in the Western world where, uh, you know, there's insurance and, you know, people can pay. You know, what we also realized, the price point of what we had built, like take CardioInsight, for instance, it was one disposable vest was about mm-hmm. average around two to $3,000. I mean, that is like, you know, higher than the average annual income of a lot of people in India. So we wanted to create something that had universal appeal, access, and solve a global problem. And around that time, both of us being part of a sandwich generation, getting kind of up in age, had had some chronic issues of our own. And we also had kids that were, you know, starting to, you know, have some issues at school and then parents that were aging that, you know, we, we were caregiving for. We were Googling all the time, you know, Googling, you know, breast cancer, Googling Mm. uh, asthma, Googling colitis, you know, you're Googling, 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 and then you realize, well, as a healthcare entrepreneur that knows so many physicians, you know, people reach us, reach to us for referrals. Hey, what do I do? I've been asked to do this. Can you help me? And then we're Googling, we're trying to, you know, dissect the information and push it back in a very understandable way back to our parents or whoever it is that was asking that information. And so we, 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 in 2017, we kind of mentally created the concept of vital exchange. We said, hey, it has to be, it's, it's, it's a vital exchange of a piece of information that's going to allow a patient to move forward, whatever that next vital step is. And then we, uh, we kind of brainstormed that. So meanwhile, we took a little detour. So we were really ripe to do something disruptive, something that had impact. We wanted to have meaning in our lives coming out of the big corporate environment. And one of my friends said, hey, I have this fantastic idea. It's really prime for it. It's, it's actually, you know, he had worked 15 years in the microfinance lending, global lending in Africa, India. And he said, Mm. there's no scoring algorithm, like there's no credit scoring algorithm to lend money to people that have no credit history. And I have this fantastic AI, like machine learning algorithm that can do it. Can you just help me build the software? I'll bring in the domain knowledge. You guys help me build the software. You guys have done the startup before. So the three of us co-founded a microfinance machine learning based credit scoring company called Lokieta. We got funding here, funded it through its seed stages, and it was actually based here in Cleveland. And then my co-founder, you know, kind of quit his, he had some commitments. He quit his job with uh, World Bank, and then he came over and took over as Lokyata CEO full-time, and we're both on the board of the company. So this happened in 2017 and 18. And then we said, okay, well, we're ready to pick back up. Okay, where where do we leave off with Vital Exchange? And then in 2019, we actually incorporated the company. And it it had been a very fantastic ride because in March, I uh, flew over to San Francisco for some other reason, actually personal. And I just made a stop over you know, with one of our advisors, Adam Kaufman here, who is a Clevelander, who is also a partner at Ovo Fund. And I had listened to Eric Chen's podcast that he had done. And I also met him while he was here, who's Eric Chen's uh, 
is a founder of the OVO Fund, which is a very early stage seed fund. And I went over to San Francisco and I said, we're going to do this vital exchange thing. This is the concept. This is very broad vision. And we're going to just go down the path and look at multiple different conditions and then pick one where we can create the maximum impact. Next today, Eric called Adam and Adam called us and said, hey, Ovo would like to invest in your company. So we had like, we were in a situation where we had no plan, nothing, <laughs> but we really were able to articulate. Like we were, we, we knew we would do something really big, no matter how complicated it was. And we wanted to create impact, not just try to be another limp along technology. So that's what we did. So we, we got it and then Jumpstart, you know, put in one of their early, you know, Jumpstart participated. I had that we invested money as well as we had um, a couple other angels, one from San Francisco, another one from uh, Phoenix, uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, actually uh, invest. And we've raised about $2 million so far. And we profiled 21 different conditions, interviewed hundreds of patients. So meanwhile, we were really starting to see some issues with the schools, some issues with our kids, really started to kind of back end into this concept of neurodiversity and autism. And it was like an epiphany because I come from a family of several types of neurodiversities like dyslexia, attention deficit, and autism. And I'd never thought, and when we connected the dots in April of two, like yeah. during the pandemic year early, it was like, wow. What are we doing? Anything else? Let's just do this. Because if we can, if we can really solve the problems of these parents that want to do the best for their kids, we're doing something impactful here. That's even with all the infrastructure, many problems in the U.S. Just imagine if you other countries where there's no strong public school infrastructure or public health infrastructure. So that's my long-winded answer to your question. No, it's an incredible journey to to get here today. I love if you can just kind of expand on the the problem a, a little bit in, in terms of you know ultimately who when you know when when you're doing that googling to find you know the right information. How is it that you're going about the curation of you know the the right direction that you want to you know guide people who are who are seeking answers to the kinds of questions that may have been difficult to right. find before. So here is a the little journey within the implementation of vital exchange. So initially, our premise was that we would match patients to other patients or families to other families that had similar circumstances. And then we would have an experience differential so that the experienced family could help the less experienced family or the family at the beginning of the journey. And we quickly realized that, so, so we, we built a community platform, essentially. So we betaed it in April. We, we brought a couple of partners on board um, that were like special needs um, schools and practices. And we onboarded the families that were their customers. And then we, we really started to look, uh, and then obviously Facebook groups and other, like we started to test other communities. And what we found was unfortunately there is a lot of noise and it's very hard to electronically moderate that so for example take the there's a there's a specific kind of therapy called applied behavioral therapy 
in the behavior health space. So it's basically a kind of regimented therapy, which is put, which the children go through so that they would behave, you know, inside a constrained environment. There are for every parent that believed that ABA saved their kid's life and made it much more helpful for them to function, there will be a parent that basically says ABA is abuse. Okay. So when you look at the moderator's problem, you can't take sides, right? Like, but if you look at it, it's uh, ABA is evidence-based and, you know, it's, it's this, it's a that. So then we really started to veer towards the concept of matching families to qualified resources so that they would kind of drive and connect the dots on their own. But the sources of information was vetted. So we were like thinking, hey, we need to have providers on the platform, but we actually did not like how providers and patients exchange information. You know, half the time before I even decide I want to go see a doctor, they get the scheduling done. I got to drive. I got to fill out all this paperwork. And oftentimes, especially in this type of, you know, in, in behavioral health or in pediatric therapies or whatever, half the time you don't like the provider because they're not the exact fit for you, right? But I'll, mm. I'll keep on limping along because I've done right. all this overhead work. So we were not so interested in the traditional information delivery because that was after the fact. We wanted to say, how can we take all of this wisdom that was trapped and, and held behind the walls of a very bureaucratic healthcare system and really open the door so that wisdom mm. would reach patients, right? We had heard unequivocally from all the providers that they hated it when, when parents came in and said, I Googled this. Okay, look at this printout. This is what it says. And like, well, <laughs> right. I went to medical school, you know, doctor, Google's not going to solve your problems, you know. But the reality is Googling is easy to do, right? So what is the recourse for the, for the patient? Are you going to talk to the patient every time in the middle of the night this child is having a seizure or they need to ask a question? Are you going to be there? No. So. We were like in this around the summertime during the pandemic year, we had just launched. We were like, what do we do here? Right. And then something like a really silver lining happened in the pandemic cloud. And that was the, like people started adopting telehealth technologies, remote service delivery. Like a lot could be done through a camera and through like, yeah, yeah. you know, like, and so really that was the foray of remote service delivery into the healthcare system that really entered Main Street. Like before it was what, six to 9% something penetration. And really during the COVID year, most places reached 96 plus percent of utilization. And what happened was this entire pediatric special needs therapy space that had a significant amount of burnout because it's really hard to care for the children. There's a lot of emotional, you know, what we call empathy fatigue with, with the providers and a lot, a lot of burnout. And now telehealth and remote service delivery was really offering providers a nice new way to practice, help families without, you know, and, but, but at the same time, balancing their time without really sitting and filling the paperwork, showing on site, driving to different places. So we, decided uh, in late fall to create a new paradigm. You know, we, and I think, you know, one of the themes that I want to talk about, which I think you alluded to as well, is why isn't consumerism in healthcare, right? You're talking to a generation of parents, especially younger parents that are just getting their children diagnosed with any type of neurodiversity. 
they're Ubering, they're Venmoing, they're DoorDashing. And when it comes to healthcare, they're filling out paperwork, right? So then, um, then we, really, we really started to say, okay, what if we created, based on combining the gig economy and the creator economy, a new model that would put the therapist or the expert, loosely speaking, in the role of the creator? What if they created classes? What if they created chats? What if they created webinars, courses, recipes? So many ways, right? So we, that's what we did. And so we created a Shopify for health. So we have the community piece, which is really, the, I would say it's foundational. It's not the front and center piece. But then we have the Shopify for health. It's kind of a two-sided marketplace. We did launch in February and, and we have everything, the payment processing, the scheduling, social sharing, everything. It's, 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 it's literally yeah, a practice yeah. in a box. And, but but not, an, a, not a traditional telehealth practice. It's actually a way for the, for the therapists to share their wisdom in multiple different ways. So we, we st- stocked the shelf. It was, it was like the most, it was such a crazy uptake we had. So we went to like two or three different bloggers in the space and said, hey, we would like for you to promote Vital Exchange and say, hey, see if any of your therapists are interested. I am not exaggerating. We have done a hundred interviews in the last two months alone for therapists. And we've onboarded, we have about a pretty good balance of 50 therapists now on the platform with all different kinds of storefronts. We call them storefronts and offers on the storefront. Anything from $4.99, hey, have a tea with me to talk about your kid to here's a toolbox that you can buy that with dollar store items to help your child with sensory issues at home. So like super exciting. So now we just, as of last week, we, because the pandemic also created a shift. We were a mobile app before, and now we're, we are a web app also because kind of the world shifted to using computers more often because they were home more. And so we just launched our web app version. And now going back to your original question, we're now using <laughs> uh, search algorithms and, you know, we're trying to divert the traffic so to speak, that's looking at different parts of the journey, really working with different types of organizations, nonprofits to be able to say, hey, your parents are looking for help, you know, come here. If the parents are Googling for help, let's show you what we got. Don't have to read an article and get overwhelmed. Talk to somebody. And we, we call our experts vital guides. So they actually are your navigators. Now it's, there are a lot of threads there that I, I'd love to pull on and, and go a little deeper. But I, to start taking a, a step back and, and more of the macro pitch, picture, why do you think we aren't seeing the consumer quality of life enhancements that we've seen across literally every other industry, like you were mentioning, except in healthcare, right? This, the, you know, with the proliferation of the telehealth uh, industry over the last year, you know, we've greatly increased everyone's, you know, willingness and, and comfort with, with doing it. Um, but do you feel like it's a, there's a staying power to that catalyst or is it a one-time event? How, how do you think about that space and why we haven't seen the just the technological adoption in the space that we've seen elsewhere. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question, and I I think it's slower. Uh, I wouldn't say we're not seeing it; it's definitely slower. But there's va- various factors for that, right? Because you know, I think one catalyst I would say is really a lot of tools that uh, enable patients to make informed decisions, right? So, for example. 
take GoodRx, which gives you know pharmacy discounts. It explains to you how, how these drugs work and everything. It actually tells the patient what it's about and where they can buy it for cheap. Such an important decision, right? Or what an alternative may yeah. be. So that information was before not available. So that's now consumerized, for example. The other aspect of it, the newer models, right? Like direct primary care, like for a monthly subscription, you could access a primary care doctor front of the line without being worried about them trying to refer you to high cost, you know, like surgical procedures or whatnot at the back end because they belong to an affiliated larger hospital system that get that makes money not from the primary care doctor but the procedure that you've referred them to right the other aspect is value-based healthcare and reimbursement shifting from the fee-for-service model to more outcomes based that's kind of to me it's uh lovely it sounds really great but you got to change yeah. so many people's habits to do that i'll give you a trite example from a page from amazon's Hit, you know, 20, what is it? 22 year history is that, you know, when Amazon first started, if you, if you read the original articles, there was a lot of dialogue about why it won't take off because, you know, no retailer wants to see consumer reviews, right? Ratings about products. What, guess what? Consumers want to see them, right? And so it took <laughs> off. So similar to that, I like the fact that digital health is giving consumers a voice. It's giving consumers front row access to choices that they can make. And I think the newer models, and we believe Vital Exchange is one of those models, which would help starting in the special needs world. We, 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 have, we, we want to replicate this playbook elsewhere is to say, if I'm having access to the quality information and I'm starting to engage with the provider on my terms, then I will start now investing on my own terms and my own health. And then slowly we start become, becoming wellness focused rather than let's get all, let's get sick and then you know somebody else in the back end fixes it the stakeholders i mean i would say that the medical system is really great for you know where you have a like a cancer or a surgery and it's really great for that it's really not great for chronic illnesses that needs to be managed across the board nutrition sleep fitness stress management it doesn't happen there's no hammer and nail approach at the back end where they can give you a pill or you know cut you open and fix it, right? That, that's not going to happen. So a lot of power, you know, lies in the 8,000 hours that I'm spending on my own that I'm not in front of a doctor. So right, right, I'm, right. I'm up to, I'm going to be on in my own vices if I, um, up to my own vices if, I, if you leave me alone. So what if I created a paradigm where you could actually, you know, give me access to my innermost concerns 24-7 and monetize it, let the expert get paid for it. But one mentality change to talk, go back to your sustainability question is it certainly works in the pediatric therapy space. I do have my doubts whether traditional MDs at this stage would, would be like, well, my hour is $200 an hour or $300 an hour. You know, my, and because that mentality is permeated, right? It's from the medical schools onwards, you know, that the doctor's time is more valuable than the patient time. And that is a huge, huge barrier. If you do not think that your patients are your customers, consumerism's not going to happen. But what's going to happen is what happened with Amazon is when consumers are empowered and the, the supply side doesn't step up, it gets commoditized because there will be a whole faction that wants to step up and a whole faction that won't. And then the free market will fight it out. So are we ready for that? I don't think so. 
going to make a lot of people really and a lot of large health systems quite nervous, but it has to happen. In the shift, at least in the direction of, of that paradigm change, where you think about where Vital Exchange sits, and, and I'd love to kind of go deeper on the Shopify analogy and, and Vital Exchange as a you know, health practice in a box kind of idea, but just you know, simple question, how is it that Vital Exchange is making money um, in, in this ecosystem? The model that we're test driving now is a model where the provider that's setting up a storefront pays us a subscription fee for data and the you know all access to the storefront services, and then they and then we also have a, a technology access fee as a a percentage of the um, money made on the platform because some of them are low value, high velocity services, some of them are large value services. We are also looking at other verticals like employer verticals where the employer would provide vital exchange as a disability uh, benefit to their employees. And we might, you know, move into a more of the B2C consumer model that could be subsidized or premium access for the employer. You know, one of the angles that's very, very, I'm very passionate about is that a majority of our therapists on the platform that really serve the special needs space are women. And the parents that are parent mentors that we've interviewed and hired on the platform that have really off ramped from their entire careers to be able to take care of their special needs children, they're like superheroes. They're all mothers. And we are able to create opportunities for them to make money by helping other people. So that's the other philosophy, right? Money is always more powerful than charity. And it makes everybody's time worthwhile. But we are really, really passionate about the social impact on women. And that's an angle we'll definitely explore. I mean, one in three women through the pandemic have considered leaving their jobs because the infrastructure was weak and COVID and the lack of you know, infrastructural in terms of caregiving responsibilities, childcare responsibilities, et cetera, really fell apart, right? A lot of women, you know, 45% of women uh, either off-ramped or went part-time. So it's something that we feel is it should be a key part of our monetization, our messaging and value is is really how do we empower women through vital exchange? Yeah, when I when I think about empowerment, uh, particularly in the context of the sh- of the Shopify analogy where you know you have yeah, against the the Amazons of the world being the uh, you know the health, the larger healthcare institutions, in, in this in this case, you know people that were wanting to set up shops and they just didn't have the right tools to pull you know the payment infrastructure together, the distribution to the consumers. I'm just curious from like the technology perspective, how is it that you've pieced all of these items together to create a you know a platform to empower the the practitioners to help you know offer these services to the, to the consumers, and then on the consumer front, also kind of playing into the the Shopify analogy, you know, there's a there's quite a large consumer community that exists within Shopify's world that I don't think quite exists within Amazon's world, where people really connect with you know the specific stores that they have access to, um, and the 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 relationships that they're actually able to develop with with the source of the information. And so I'm curious, kind of the, the parallel there. Exactly. So I think I think you hit the nail on the head. Is we don't call ourselves the Amazon of healthcare because that doesn't have the emotional component. You know, what Shopify does differently is in Shopify, 
that shop owners take accountability for the quality of services that they're offering through the shop. That's how they build that relationship with their customer, which is very important in vital exchanges case, right? The vital exchange is really happening between the provider and or or the or the vital guide, let's call them vital guides, yeah. uh, parent mentors, et cetera, as well as the, the the person in need. So it's really important that they own it. They own that relationship. So our vetting process, so going back to your question, like there's a lot of parts pieces. So we we have a huge value chain diagram where we've really charted out from every piece to credit card processing all the way to leading into reimbursement, the employer vertical aspect of it, to even you know, HIPAA compliance, uh, electronic record integration. I mean, everything that you would need to put within the playbook of what a healthcare provider would need to start set up shop, but at the same time scale into basically provide scalability. And we have probably implemented like 25% of it. So what we did is we basically implemented the piece, which is out-of-pocket payments, supplementary care. And our honestly, our pitch to the therapist is quite simple. Like they get in 10 minutes, they enter a few things. We have a web, a separate product. We call it BX Max. It's a web portal. Mm-hmm. They enter a bunch of things into it and they get outcomes, a sh- little storefront on the app and a web page. No technology, no coding, nothing. So that's kind of how it, it seems. Because a lot of the interesting part is because of the burnout, because of COVID, because of the nature of the job, Pretty much 100% of people that knock our doors have considered going on their own, but been very, very intimidated. I mean, we all know, right, as a co-founder, you know, starting your own business, is it's hard. You got to do yeah. a, you know, incorporate funding, you know, marketing, you know, technology, you got to set up your own website. Now, Google SEO algorithms are changing every day. So that's kind of what we do. So we have really four pieces to our platform. Number one is a mobile app so that, you know, everything has to be in the palm of your hands. We also want to make sure that even if the family doesn't have high-speed internet computers at home, we want, they have mobile phone, right? Mobile penetration is so much higher than, you know, desktop computers. So number one. Number two is a web application, which is kind of where they would do most of their transactions, find us on Google, things like that. Third one is the VX Max portal, which is really the Shopify piece. And the fourth one is our learning engine. We call it Vera, like Veritas Truth. It's got multiple components. There's a matching engine, which is learning now. It's not yet deployed. We have a conversational interface that's coming out next, actually, in two weeks. So basically, um, really leading the asking questions, leading, leading the family to the right type of offering. And then obviously, we're, we have a huge data collection. You can imagine like every question that's being answered can end up, you know, being a database of different types of quality answers as well. So, I mean, there's, there's, that's the technology bucket right there. And, and ultimately, we want to create a lot of free resources that, that would be available for families and then create that and use that to drive tools and create through a limited marketplace launch, create a very strong single player mode for the parents. So they may come in and we want, we want to monetize that single player mode as well. Yeah. For, for those who have engaged within the, the platform and the community already, what has the reception been? What has been the kind of impact that you've been able to see from people working with the, the vital guides and, and actually starting those relationships and, and having access to this, this platform and, and all this information? Right. So I think 
you know, we're just at the beginning stages of that. So like I said, we opened the doors last week. We, we have about a few thousand patients on the platform. I mean, families on the platform. That was part of our beta, so mm-hmm. to speak. So we just started to now onboard for all the value propositions that I just spoke about, giving a child every opportunity they deserve you know, providing a Sherpa, a vital guide to every family, every every mom or dad that wants to do what they, you know, understand what their child is going through and really find them every support that they can, you know, that sort of thing. So the response so far in terms of, like, I would say it's anecdotal. We're just starting to collect the metrics has been really overwhelmingly positive. You know, I just, just announced this on LinkedIn the other day. We had so many uh, professional, it was like a professional announcement but I had so many comments from my professional colleagues that I didn't even know had children that had graduated. And they said, hey, I wish I had this, you know, when my child was in school. And this is great what you're doing. Let me know what support you need. And that's, that's, that's really the, the unfortunate truth is what we want to do is change the stigma around special needs. Okay, you will get stigma to sympathy is an easier transition, but we want stigma to sympathy to support you know, to solutions. So, I mean, that's the journey, right? So that's what we're trying to do. And, you know, we are, we, we, we can't do this alone. So scalability depends on the kind of very focused verticals that we can uh, unleash, like the employers are a key part of it, right? As of, I think, 2021, I think 50% of the landscape, which is even higher than health and human services, employers are responsible for. Ultimately, they are the payers, right? They are the ones that are footing the bill for, our health. So uh, it's really important that they are, I mean, I would boil it down to say that it's a key part of what an employer can do for particularly their parent employees, particularly their women employees, because when you have a child, you're young, you don't, when you have a child that's in distress, it's not easy to focus on the job. Like, what does that mean to productivity? What does that mean to retention? What does that mean to loyalty? I mean, I would be very loyal to a company that actually took care of my entire family, right? I would prefer that over chocolate bars, vegan food, and yoga classes. Right, right. Yeah, that, that matters, ultimately. You mentioned in the earlier days of, of Vital Exchange how perhaps the initial thought was connecting families to families rather than to the guides necessarily. And, and, but as you build this community over time of, of the families on the platform, how are you thinking about unlocking the community potential um, just within the family side of the platform and just through you know those empathy and, and the relationships and just the the shared experience that, that that you could unlock just by connecting those people? True. So that's that's a great question. And I'll give you a partial answer to that because we put in one solution. And so we have six free communities on the platform centered around different themes like autism special needs, learning disability, you know, that sort of thing. And what we've done is we've actually created a community. That community is free for anybody that joins it. And, and, and uh, we, we, our algorithms, based on what you enter during the onboarding process, will decide which community you, you fit in the most, right? And those communities also have those appropriate providers as well. So it's not just the parents, but it's also the providers. And we moderate that. And the idea here is to create, and we, we can see this, and we actually studied several Facebook groups that are moderated by a parent 
or a patient, and then you have multiple patients kind of putting in their opinions versus groups where you have, you know, the professionals as part of it as well. So you're really trying to, we're trying to create an environment where more like uh, Quora, for example, mm. really good Quora threads are where, uh, where you speak only if you have, you're qualified to answer. So we are trying to create that culture versus a Reddit or Facebook kind of culture where everybody talks and then you have 10% of the people that talk louder than everybody else. Um, we're trying to create like when you give an answer, it's going to be long, it's going to be detailed, but but then it's going to be authoritative that, hey, I am a parent, I've gone through this, this is what I mean, or I am a professional, I treat this, come talk to me. Yeah. I mean, that's our uh, our first attempt at answering the question about how do we create not lose the community piece and make it more transactional. Also, every provider on our platform also gets a community. It's free for every, anybody mm-hmm. to join. And every, if I buy services from you, I'll automatically get joined to your community. So we're trying to create that. But there's new habits to teach, right? Unlike creators on Patreon that are used to engaging with customers in this way, uh, doctors, uh, clinicians are not used to writing long. Only the bloggers do that, right? Not everybody can blog. Not everybody can write. Not everybody can podcast, right? Right. So it's something that they're learning on how to engage other than one-on-one consultations in the clinical consultations. So it, 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 there's a learning curve there. We are we will be launching a seller services program as well. So really providing, bringing in invited speakers to do masterclasses teaching people how to help themselves, how to set up, how to promote their businesses. So like I said, our value chain, like we've charted is overwhelmingly complicated. We are trying to think Yeah, I can imagine. So no, I was just going to say the, the, the vision and the, you know, scope of impact that you hope to have is in, in, like incredibly ambitious. And I'm, I'm just curious on the company building side, especially as a repeat, you know, founder and, and entrepreneur, um, how you kind of <laughs> have harnessed the the bounce of of Tigger, as you mentioned, and and just like the, the what are the things that you're doing differently this time around, and just on the company building side with with the the breadth of a vision that you have for the company, just how you think about reconciling the breadth with focus in in the current moment, and just uh, a little bit more about how you've gone about actually. The, the company building side of it. Yeah. So obviously there's a lot of lessons learned, right? So because I was inexperienced, I was a first time founder when I started Cardio Insight. So there were a lot of mistakes made, mostly in self-doubt. You know, I wasn't sure, should I trust my intuition, somebody else's advice? And as I mentioned, the the Cleveland area network is still, still really emerging, right? It's evolving as a... Uh, as a as an entrepreneurial ecosystem, much better now than it was before, but it's still emerging. Challenges with that, you know. One of the things is uh, the the I am extremely extremely picky about the people that I choose to work with, because one of mm-hmm. uh, the key things that we and my co-founder is exactly the same way, and the two of us are actually really good friends in in life as well, so in personal life as well. And the important thing is everybody should embody that vision, embody that mission, and that. And it's not an easy thing, right? Because we're trying to not find the first business model that'll give us a few revenues and then not really veer away from the problem to be solved. And I, I felt like with my first companies, there was 
we didn't really crystallize exactly what our vision was going to be. We were mostly so like we had this technology, it would solve all the problems in cardiology. We didn't know exactly how broad, how deep, who was, you know, do we go to surgeons? Do we go to electrophysiology? Do we do, do that? It was just very confusing. It was always confusing. It was confusing till the last day, right? So we tr- now, it's, <laughs> although it sounds, it's been a harder journey with Vital Exchange, I'll admit, because we didn't start with a technology platform. We started with a broad, ambitious vision. And we've, you know, we met a lot of investors and a lot of collaborators along the way that said, mm, I don't think this is going to work because you're going to cannibalize my practice. Or, you know, I charge $750 an hour. Like, I'm not interested in your, pl-. I mean, like there's this constant. And then obviously the investors were like, well, this is an audacious, too audacious of a vision and it's going to take you a long time. We're looking for an MVP that'll turn on a dime tomorrow, right? Or as you had the other end, which is like, you're, your uh, vision is not audacious enough, right? We want to have moonshots. I mean, it's it's all of these things. But then because we were so steadfast in what it is that we tried to do, because I knew this from my previous experiences, we're like, no, we're not moving because the problem hasn't shifted. Your perception of the problem may be in a different space, but our problem hasn't shifted. And just to have the the audacity and the confidence to feel and stay on course without getting blown away. I mean, COVID year was hard for us, right? Business development was really sure. challenging. Try selling anything on Zoom. Like I'm even bored of hearing my own voice <laughs> droning on. So it was hard. But to, again, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And guess what? I mean, COVID really opened the Shopify door for us. You know, we really were able to jump on it and just like hit the ground running. So, I mean, that I would say is my biggest thing is like believing in oneself, really steadfast, really building that culture that each grain, each, each, each morsel of our company, actions we do, the employees we do, how they do their work is really focused on the mission and, the, and building that culture is really, I, I'm taking time to do that. So that's definitely something that I learned along the journey. Bring, bringing in advisors so I don't get too lonely or I'm, like, I'm in an echo, echo, Ketel and I are in an echo chamber talking to each other and convincing ourselves and drinking the Kool-Aid, trying not to do a lot of that. And lastly, most important, and, and, and I don't want to say this, I don't want to sound trite because, you know, everyone says this, is really finding that balance uh, and really being deliberate about investing in your own mental and physical well-being and our employees as mm. well. And culture has shifted here also. And obviously, COVID's really exposed a lot of, pro- you know, a lot of pressures that didn't, that weren't acknowledged before. Is 15 years ago or 10 years ago, you'd be a hero on the job. You would work nights and weekends and days and losing sleep and you'd brag about it, right? That's what I did. Now, if somebody does that, I'll say you're a fool. Why? I, why do you have to, you know, that you should be working smart, not working hard. So that's a lesson learned for me because that's a culture that yeah. I try to detach from because that's not okay. It's not okay to let everything pass you by because you're trying to like a crazy person run on this mission and the brain flow and the brain and yourself holistically, spiritually needs nourishment and really not taking a step back once in a while is a good thing. So I'm really deliberate about that. And, and I'm super passionate about that. I'm hoping Vital Exchange will start moving in that direction at some point too. Yeah, yeah. Does that just, from your own you know, personal journey here, does that just require a, a, a level of intentionality? Because you know, building a startup, as much as you can work smart, is sometimes you just have to work hard. And 
you know, that we're, we're at the stages in our companies where we haven't quite, you know, we don't have the luxury necessarily of, of course. <laughs> so I, I, how, how do you personally kind of, you know, you, you mentioned a deliberateness for it. So I'll, gi- I'll give you several examples. Number one is every Friday we take some time off to take a step back. So you're not like doing the task management, right? Meeting to meeting, you know, you're, Slack messaging, like crushing inbox zero, all of that stuff. No, you just take a step back. The last two days, my partner, uh, Ketel and I, we spent time at a local, um, it's like a vineyard resort thing nearby here. We just went over there and we just sat there. We had a list of things that I jotted down on my iPad and we just talked about it. It was a very meandering, broad level conversation. And we made a lot of decisions at the end of it totally behind on emails, drop the ball on a hundred different things, but it was worth <laughs> it, right? Because otherwise you're like doing the task, doing the task, doing the task and really losing the big picture. So, but that helps you, that fills you up because we, I love, I'm doing this podcast because I love talking about vital exchange at this level because it energizes me to talk about it. And then I feel like, okay, my life has meaning. What I'm doing has meaning because I'm narrating it to you with passion, right? So that's <laughs> kind of that. The other part is the, exercise. So definitely one hour in the day, whether it's in the middle of the day, whatever, it's always, it happens. I never, if I, if something gets scheduled, I'll say, sorry, I got to go exercise. Yeah. So I, I, that's, those are the key things that I, um, that I'm very, very, very particular about. And my team is as well. They're also quite, you know, and I, I try to make sure that they are also taking care of themselves, which has been really hard with remote work. Everything you've said has resonated a lot. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I do. I mean, I do. I have to work about twelve hours a day, and you know, there are days when my family is not very happy with me. But I got to take a pause and acknowledge. Yes, I understand. Okay, let's do something that that all of us can go. I just took a vacation for a week, took a step back, made sure that I'm not like. And if, even if I did, I said, okay, I'm going to just check emails one hour in the morning, and what'll what'll wait will wait. And it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> but sometimes I feel like always when I come back and re-engage, it's something big happens, something nice happens. I always find that. So I feel like that's the high I'm looking for. Not the yeah. high of saying, I crushed it, I crushed it, I crushed it. I feel like I'm a hamster in a wheel and I'm spinning really fast. That's okay too, but you should try out the pause. Pause also helps. Yeah, it just sometimes affords perspective that you don't get just head down all day. You just need to sit up and take a look around and see what's out there. Right. Right. In in the spirit of, you know, fun and, and relaxing things, you know, one of the things that we have everyone on the show, you know, help us collectively paint here is a, a collage of not necessarily people's favorite things in Cleveland, but of hidden gems or things that other people may not necessarily know. So with that. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's not like a what I love about Cleveland, which I haven't really been able to enjoy as much in other cities, is the metro parks here. So large outdoor spaces, right? There are parks w- with waterfalls. Some of them are right in front of Lake Erie, so you get a lot of beach type of uh, interactions. Uh, lots and lots of trails, uh, bicycles, tracks. Yeah, and just on Tuesday, I, I was in a yoga class by Lake Erie. So watch those sunset oh, yoga amazing. right on Lake Erie <laughs> Metro Parks in Euclid. So it's like there's no crowd there. You know, the, the, you always find parking. 
it's safe, and it's beautiful. And pretty much eight months of the year, unless it snows too too much or whatever, and there's snow showing as well in the metro parks. I don't, I'm not a big snow person, so <laughs> but it's beautiful. I mean, I just, I just, I and it's it's all over, right? You know, you can you can have so many of them. Like I get, I have like twelve of them within my reach. And what I also found last summer during COVID was people left little rocks. Have you seen those little rocks? Just like the engraved or like carved ones? Yeah. So they paint rocks. So they would leave yeah. a message on a rock and you would hide it. And then it, I think it's called Northeast Ohio Rocks. It's a Facebook group. Oh, and wow. then you basically take a picture of the rock and you put it. And then whoever put it there would say, oh, you found it. And then you, you find it, you take a picture of it and you hide it again. It's just this amazing little, you know, hidden gem, right? Hidden rock. Yeah. And it's, it's because why I'll tell you, and I'm not, I'm usually not a super sentimental person at all, but social isolation was just such a big negative impact in all our lives that connecting with strangers through messages on these rocks, I just found it incredibly amusing. Like I would go to the Metro parks just to find these hidden gems. And, and I would leave little messages as well. Like, Somebody else could have a nice day if they found it, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> ah, that's awesome. I love it. Well, uh, Charlie, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and, and what you're working on at Vital Exchange. It is it is very, um, very cool to, to see what you're building. And I just love hearing from <laughs> the, the passion and it's it's very clear. So I'm excited that that you were able to come on and uh, hopefully share, share your story to our many, many, <laughs> dozens of listeners here. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. If people have anything that they want to follow up with you about or to just say hello, where's the the best place for them to, to reach you? Um, they can email me at charu, C-H-A-R-U, at vitalexchange.com or else you can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.